Welcome to episode 54 of the Rich Roll Podcast with no meat athlete, Matt Frazier. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Rich Roll and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. Welcome to the show. What do we do here? Each week I bring to you the best and the brightest, the most forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds in health and fitness and wellness. I've had doctors, nutritionists, entrepreneurs, world-class athletes, writers, bloggers, health professionals, all different kinds of people. My goal is simple, to bring to you the best information so that you can sift through it, find what resonates with you, incorporate it into your life, so that you can unlock and unleash your best, most authentic self. Today on the show, I'm very excited to have my buddy, Matt Frazier. You might know him as the No Meat Athlete from nomeatathlete.com. He's the runs on plants guy. And uh, I've known Matt for a couple of years and have been following him online for longer than that. Uh, If you're not familiar with nomeatathlete.com, it is an amazing online resource for people that are interested in learning more about how to eat a healthy plant-based diet and and to also be fit. Matt's a marathon runner. He's run the the Boston Marathon. He's got a couple 50-miler races under his belt and uh, also has run a 100-miler. And what's great about his website is he's very authentic and transparent in his journey. Uh, This is a site that started off just as a place for him to blog about his new experiment and eating a vegetarian diet and seeing what might happen. And it's morphed over time into a a very active and and robust community uh, that has turned more into an informational and educational resource for uh, for people out there that are just looking to up their game, really. Um, for the most part, almost everything on his site is completely free. He's got articles about every conceivable <laughs> issue that might come up when you're eating a plant-based diet or experimenting with a plant-based diet and also uh, you know training for a half marathon or a marathon. You might've seen on my site that I've promoted a few of his uh, digital products like his half marathon, marathon, and first triathlon uh, roadmap series, which are downloadable uh, guidebooks to getting you prepared nutritionally and physically uh, for those athletic endeavors. Um, I love Matt. He's a great guy. He has great energy. And uh, I just appreciate everything that, that he's done. And so it was a treat for me to get a chance to sit down with him and let him uh, share at length uh and the greater extent of his message. And what's really exciting about Matt is he has a book that's coming out October 1st. And we just so happen to both be at the DC VegFest. I'm in Washington, DC right now. So I had the opportunity to be able to sit down with him in person rather than to do this uh, via Skype to help him get his word out about his book, which I think is uh, great. Um, I gave him a blurb for, for his book and uh, I stand behind it. I think it's a, he's doing a great thing. It's a great resource. It's called No Meat Athlete, Run on Plants and Discover Your Fittest, Fastest, Happiest Self. Uh, it's up for pre-order now on Amazon, uh, but uh, it's going on sale October 1st. If you order it uh, before October 1st, he has all sorts of sort of pre-order incentives, you can go to nomeatathlete.com and check out what those are. So uh, uh, I don't know what date I'm putting this podcast up. It might be October 1st already when it when it gets published. But if I publish it before October 1st, um, 
act now and take advantage of the pre-order offers that he's offering. And in any case, uh, pick up this book and help support this guy and his message. Um, I think after this interview, you'll agree with me that he's a guy we can all get behind and we should all support what he's doing and his message. So anyway, um, like I said, I'm in D.C., Back home, I grew up here, my hometown, and it was great to go down to the DC Veg Fest. I, I attended this event last year, and this year it was—it seemed like it had doubled in size. It was fantastic. I had a great crowd today to come out and hear me speak and uh, sign books and take pictures and all that kind of stuff. And it was—I don't know—there had to be 500 people. I don't know. I'm terrible at estimating numbers. There were a lot of people that turned up to. Uh, to hear me and, and the other people that were here speaking. Um, and it was a delight to be here. Always happy to get up in front of people and talk about the subject I'm most passionate about, which is plant-based nutrition, life transformation, and fitness. So thank you, DC VegFest, for having me. Uh, before we get into the interview, a couple housekeeping things. I'm going to be in Karachi, Pakistan next week, uh, which is really exciting. Um, probably aren't very many people listening to this podcast who could attend that event, but... Uh, but I just wanted to share my excitement for the opportunity of getting to go to the Middle East and, and spread the plant power message there, which should be interesting. And I can't wait to come back and, and kind of share what that experience was all about. Uh, thank you for all the support with the show. Um, we really appreciate it. If you've been enjoying the show, the best way to support what we're doing is to use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for your Amazon purchases. It won't cost you anything extra. They kick us a few bucks and uh, it's helped us uh, stay in business over here, keep the lights on, and we just got some nice new equipment. So thank you for the support. Uh, you can also donate to the show. There's a donate button at richroll.com. You know, you can do it one time, once a week, whatever. You don't have to do it at all. This show will always be free, uh, but we appreciate all the support that you guys have shown us. If you're interested in dialing up your plant-based nutrition we have an online course, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. Check it out at Mind Body Green. Three and a half hours of online content, online community, all good stuff. Uh, what else? I think that's it. I'm, I, I'm getting complaints about these intros being too long, so I'm trying to shorten it up. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure 
my body is supplied with energy for a proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. So let's just get right into it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, the no meat athlete himself, Matt Frazier. Enjoy the interview. Cool, Matt. I'm glad we were able to make this work. Yeah, me too, Rich. I'm really excited to do this. I, uh, I mean, we would have done it on Skype, but it's just awesome that we're in the same city at the same, same time at a very precious moment in time for you with your book coming out. Yeah, things, this uh, is awesome. things have been busy for sure. I'm getting ready to go on the book tour and uh, the, the month or two leading up to that has been busier than I've ever been, but in a good way. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you emailed me, wasn't that long ago, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, and you're like, hey, you know, the book's getting ready to come out, and uh, we're doing the pre-order thing. And I remember when mine, this podcast could very easily devolve into a treatise on <laughs> the publishing industry, which I'm going to do my best to try to avoid. But I do remember when uh, when I was getting ready for my book to come out, and I was like, okay, I got to have all these uh, incentives to get people to pre-order it, which didn't end up really working out that much because I didn't have the following that you have. Like you've really mastered the internet and developed this really loyal, passionate audience. And, and they jumped into action because your Amazon ranking, like your book, it was still like two weeks or two, maybe two and a half weeks or something like that before it was coming out. And you were the number one book in running. And I think you were even at the top of individual sports, like ahead of Born to Run and ahead of like these amazing books, you know? And I was like, oh my God, I'm so psyched for you 
to yeah. be getting off on the right foot like that. That's incredible. It is incredible. And I'm extremely grateful that, that the No Meat Athlete audience, you know, jumped on that offer and really did, you know, excitedly support it. Uh, it's been up and down a little bit in, in those past two, three weeks. But yeah, it seems like whenever I let people know, like remind them that, that this offer is, you know, kind of running out and hurry up and get it before the release date, uh, yeah, they seem to seem to be excited to buy it. So I'm right. very grateful for that. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, but one word of advice, you can very easily get sucked into like checking your Amazon ranking all oh, the time. Yeah, you yeah, got to be careful refreshing. with that. Yeah, refreshing your Amazon page constantly and fixating on somebody's, well, it's, it's not out yet, right? So nobody can write reviews. That's right. So that'll be the next thing, like get marshalling everybody to write reviews. Yeah, and then I don't, do you read all the, like, do you read the- Only the negative ones. <laughs> I <laughs> I started writing on Huffington Post and the comments on those posts, like, cause they're like posts about like 10 things I've learned since being vegan. The posts, I mean, the comments are just insanely anti-vegan and like, yeah. I can't. I, well, you're probably used to getting really friendly comments on your site, right? It's a self-selecting group of people. Exactly. So once but now you're in this, the real world. Yeah. Welcome to the real world. So I just don't read them. I mean, I, yeah, I, can't. Can't. I would, you can't, I would stop writing if I did. I'm in an interesting thing right now where. I mean, I was lucky enough to get, I think I have almost 400 Amazon reviews. Nice. And overwhelmingly positive, mostly five-star, like, you know, more than the preponderance of them are five-star. But there's something about um, the way that the review algorithm works with Amazon where, you know, at the bottom of every review, it says, was this review helpful, right? And so if something's a good review, a consumer who's interested in the book is probably not going to click was this helpful? But if it's a negative review, then they'll say, oh, that was helpful because now sure. I know not to buy this book. Right. Helpful. Yeah. Right. So if you go to the, the, the main page for Finding Ultra, uh, you'll see the, you know, how many reviews and all the stars and see how many other five stars, but then they highlight, you know, like the four reviews or whatever that were most helpful. And they're, they're super negative, you know, and I, there's nothing you could do about it. If on the right-hand margin, there's a bunch of nice things, but it's like, the main ones that people are going to see are the bad ones. And I'm like, Ugh, what are yeah. you going to do? There's, you know? also, there's also an algorithm in your head that makes those the ones that you remember. Like you can get, it doesn't matter how many good ones you can get. The one bad one is the one that you play over and over in your head. And of course the algorithm in my head is broken because <laughs> I, I will just obsess on that, you know, like, but he didn't, uh, you know, but I, you can't engage with that either. It's like, you're not going to, you can't be healthy and do that. No, nah, you're going to make yourself so. crazy. But, um, but you're off to a flying start, which is really exciting. And this, I guess, is kind of, we're at the DC Veg Fest, um, the No Meat Athlete. Uh, you and Doug have a booth set up and you're selling the book and t-shirts. And I spoke today and it was a huge, I mean, we were both here at this event last year. It looks like it's much bigger this year. Yeah, definitely. It's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, that's just a testament to people being interested in this way of eating and this way of life and to see it grow. I mean, I've been doing this, this kind of circuit for the last year and a half. And, you know, I've, I've, like this one, I've gone back to a couple of events that I went to last year and to see them bigger than the year before is really cool and encouraging. Yeah, it, it's definitely picking up and it's cool to see people like come up with their three and five. I mean, while you were at our table, you saw someone right. come up with the three-year-old kid and said, you know, we're trying to transition him to vegetarian and we're there, but he's not mm -hmm. quite ready to do it. And it's like, right. it's just very cool that people are even thinking about that. Yeah, exactly. And we're both parents, right. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, doing the best that we can. And it's not that we're the ultimate authority on any of these issues. It's just about sharing your experience, my experience and trying to help people. But yeah, it's great to see so many families and kids interested in it. And, 
And now there's so many new, you know, food products and just, you know, the food trucks that were out there with the huge lines of people trying to get healthy food. It's, it's awesome. It is. And there's also a lot more junk food out there. Now there, is, there Yeah, there's a lot of junk. There's a lot of vegan junk food. It's very, it's getting easier and easier to be a, a junk food <laughs> vegan for sure, you yeah. know. And it's, it's that weird kind of, I talked about this in my talk today, that the power of denial where, you know, you can say, oh, I'm eating a vegan diet. I'm being so healthy. But if all you're eating is processed vegan foods all the time, then, you know, might be time to evaluate. And that stuff's good. Like I, I sort of indulge in that sure. once in a while. I don't make that like my go-to everyday practice, but the stuff tastes so much better than it used to, you know, so it gets harder and harder to say no to that stuff for sure. Um, But I want to take a step back and, um, you know, a lot of the people that listen to the podcast, they already know you, they're familiar uh, with your site and all the things, the great things that you've been doing with your blog. But I want to take a step back and kind of hear your story from the beginning. Like, how did you get into this? Like, what was, what were you doing earlier in life that led you to becoming, you know, the no meat athlete guy? Sure. Yeah, I was. Uh, I became a runner in college. I had always hated running as a kid and couldn't stand it in gym class. Dreaded the day that we would have to run the, the mile run. And uh, some friends and I in college, just kind of like the way college guys do, got the idea that even though none of us was a runner, that we could run a marathon. And and like you know, one guy said, "Oh, I'm going to run a half marathon next summer." And then, of course, the next guy said, "No, I'm going to do a marathon." And then by the end of the night, all three of us had signed up to run a marathon. None of us having ever run more than three miles in our life. So we did it, and it didn't go well, but we did all finish the race, and that was fantastic. And then from there, I- How long, how, you're young, how long ago was that? That was 10 years ago. That was uh, 2002, so uh-huh. 11 years ago now. And where'd you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Maryland. A oh, you did, north right, of, okay. North of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And where'd you, did you go to school around here? No, I went down to James Madison in Virginia. <clears throat> uh-huh, sure. So great time there, and great friends, and that's when I kind of got into fitness. And uh, so that, that first marathon took us four hours and 50 two or three minutes, I think. Uh-huh. And that sounds painful. Oh, it was our halfway point in terms of time was mile 18. So uh-huh. was, <laughs> yeah. My, why is mile 18 where it all breaks down? I don't know. Yeah. that mile 18 is further than I had ever made it in training. Cause you know, we had a lot of other priorities ahead mm-hmm. of marathon training as college kids. Yeah. When you're like young and fit and just sort of working out a little bit, you know, people, that's the common thing. Like you can make it to mile 18, you know, <laughs> right. you can kind of fake it, it like- to there. Like that's, but that's kind of the dividing line between the people who have really prepared for a marathon and the people that are just winging it. Right. So I, uh, for some reason got it in my head that I was going to qualify for the Boston marathon, which at that time took a three ten, three hours and 10 minutes, mm-hmm. which is 103 minutes faster than my first right. marathon. But I didn't like that. It just seemed like a cool race. And I was one, you know, one day I was looking at it and thought that'd be a good one to want to run. And then I realized that you had to actually qualify that they didn't just let anybody in there. And something about that, like, I'm not much of a competitive person, but I, I just did not like that I was not allowed to run this race. So I just kind of made it my mission to get to it. And it took me seven years from that first marathon, but I did eventually get down to 310. But it was at the 320 point or so, 325, 320, I had kind of plateaued in my just, you know, had stopped improving really. It was, mm-hmm. I was having small improvements, but I was doing everything I could. And I thought I didn't know where, where those last 10 minutes were going to come from. But just to interject, so how long did it take you to go from 450 or whatever it was to 325? I think that took about four marathons and uh, about six years or so. Uh-huh. But the first four of those years, I didn't run any marathons. I was not able to run another one after the first one because I had these shin 
splint and stress fracture issues. So it took me four years to run that second marathon. And then, you know, I ran a marathon each year after that and mm-hmm. slowly got down there. But I was still eating just a standard diet. Like I thought it was a healthy diet. I was eating the chicken breast and the brown rice. And to me, that was a perfect dinner. Didn't even think about vegetables, but did that. And, uh, at, at about that 320, 325 point, I had this urge to go vegetarian. I started to just, I don't know, just kind of feel a connection and compassion for animals that was, I thought, very inconvenient. Like, I just thought, because I didn't know that, that people were out there doing, you know, what you guys are doing with, you know, like really elite level endurance on plant-based diets. So I, I thought- I don't think I was doing it yet. You weren't but, then, that's true. <laughs> but guys like you, like Brendan yeah. Brazier, I think was kind of out right. there and Scott Jurek had been out there obviously doing it. But- uh yeah, so I, I just thought, I thought, no, that's impossible. You can't actually do that. Like, if I did that, it would just kind of mean giving up on Boston. Mm-hmm. But when I hit that plateau and I realized I wasn't going to get there as I was currently doing it, I said, why not just actually try this? And, you know, if, if, if it doesn't work and I slow down, then so be it. Boston wasn't meant to be. So I just decided to go vegetarian, wasn't yet vegan or even thinking about that, mm-hmm. and uh, said I was going to start a blog to document just how the experiment went because I was still still wanted to qualify for Boston and within six months I qualified for Boston on this diet I mean it mm-hmm. just were you changing your, your training too or was that the one variable I I think that allowed me I think to run train a lot harder than I ever had I had the best training summer of my life put in more and harder workouts and noticed that I was able to you know didn't get injured because I was always getting injured before this right so you know I'm hesitant to always say like Yes, it was exactly the diet that did it. That was the only variable that could have done it. But if you know, if it if it wasn't the only thing, then it was one of a very few things that that uh, did change. And then six months later, I did it, and then got into ultra distances after that. The blog kind of, you know, it just built up a following. I guess people really liked the story of going vegetarian and qualifying for Boston, and mm-hmm. especially that it actually worked. So, yeah, then then the blog just sort of took off in its own way then, and grew into what it is now. So was it, <clears throat> it was no meat athlete from the beginning. That was the blog that you started. Yeah, that was so it's it. Been that, oh, okay. So, but that's interesting. Cause when you started it, it was really, I'm documenting this experiment. It wasn't, you weren't being an advocate for anything. You were just saying, I'm going to try this and see what happens. Yeah. And I was really into cooking. So I said, I'm going to share a bunch of recipes and things like that. But I didn't write about running for the first few months of it. Cause I was just kind of experimenting with the food and mm-hmm. writing about that. But yeah, very much an experiment at first. And it took it took me to qualify for Boston and get into the ultra distances before I started to feel like I had something to actually teach or share to people. Right. I want to go back and read like your first posts. Oh, it's <laughs> awful. I mean, those first <laughs> ones are just unreadable. <laughs> so, all right. So you're being very transparent from the beginning. Like I'm trying, and then it's just, and so, so you qualify for Boston. What year was that? That was 2009. Uh-huh. So it's pretty recent. It's not that yeah, long ago. Not really that long. Uh-huh. You're such a you're such an internet kingpin. I'm thinking this has been going on for a, for a longer period of time, but it's not that long. No, ago. no, my internet empire right. has, has formed. I know. In four years. I want to. I'm 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 so like in awe and jealous of how you've built this internet thing. No. I want to. I'm going to pick your brain afterwards. I'm not going to bore the audience <laughs> I think with you'll that. Be disappointed. Like, <laughs> if you, if I don't you think, think so. I'm a kingpin, you're going to be disappointed. <clears throat> no, but what you've what I what I respect so much about what you've done is. Is, is is your transparency and your humility and your willingness to share all of this amazing information and your ability to develop um, an audience that's interested in, in what you're doing and, and create your own kind of little community and movement. Like, you know, 
I'm sort of doing that after the book, like you're doing it the right way. And I'm trying to un- figure out and understand all this internet stuff. So I don't have to go back and be a lawyer, but right. anyway, right. you can put me to school. You can give me some assignments after this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, all right, cool. So you go to, so what happened when you ran Boston? That first well, time? I took, I took one year. I did not run Boston the next year after I qualified. Cause I qualified in fall of 2009, uh, found out that our son, our first child, was due on the Boston Marathon date of 2010. So I had to kind of postpone this dream. But you know what? Really, my dream, like at some point, the idea of qualifying kind of hijacked the actual dream to run Boston. So it became about qualifying. Like that Mm -hmm. was really what I wanted to do. And the race itself was kind of just a reward. Mm -hmm. And so I did run it in 2011 and didn't run it very fast. I think I ran a 3.30 something on on the day when uh, Mutai ran the 2.02 marathon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, they said it was too fast, too good of conditions, you know. So everyone had PRs. And that was one thing I wish I could go back and do again was that I treated that race as my reward for qualifying. But when I was, so, you know, I didn't train that hard. I right. took it relaxed, right. took it easy. But when I was actually there standing in the starting corral with all these people who were, you know, in 3.10, 3.05 marathon shape, I was like, man, this is the best race in the world. And like, there's so much history here of people racing, not just running this casually. And I was like, I, I just wish that I was in a condition to actually really race this and run a PR mm-hmm. here. So I kind of want to get back there now, which now that they've changed the qualifying standards, I think will take me a run of three hours or maybe 305. But uh, it's kind of something I'm shooting for next year. Yeah, so well, we'll good. It's good to have unfinished business. It is, you know? yeah, because you get bored otherwise. and Keep you motivated. Sure. So, so at what point... Do you sort of morph from the guy who's just sort of sharing his journey somewhat privately and wondering if anyone's reading what's going on into creating this community and becoming more of an advocate? I'd say it really was after Boston. I mean, I, or after I qualified, I should say, uh, in 2009. So after I'd been blogging for about nine months and built up a following of people who, who I felt like trusted me and I don't know. I started to feel like it wasn't really about me and my journey as much as it was about all these people kind of coming together and, and celebrating what they were doing. I think I think people really liked just hearing that there was someone out there who was really interested in sort of the same things they were and someone who was demonstrating and not in a preachy way that it does work. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of how you want to define how well it works for, for what we're doing, it was hard to argue with the fact that it worked. I mean, it certainly wasn't hurting my performance because I improved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just started to get the sense that, that there was something more here. And I, and I, so I made some t-shirts and had people wear those. I sold them at like the exact same cost that I paid for them. You know, wasn't trying to make money or anything as much as just build this community. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, since then I've just sort of let that dictate. It's, it's been, as we mentioned with the Amazon, I mean, it's so wonderful to have an audience who will respond to the things that you, you know, would like them to do. And, more than that, though, to to talk to them and find out what it is that, like, what sort of resources do they need? What do they want me to write a post about? What kind of guests do they want on the podcast? Mm-hmm. So it's really nice to to just kind of leave that up to the audience as much as possible and make it about us and not the community. Not just me. Yeah, yeah, like people call me the no meat athlete, which is, I totally accept that that's what's going to be like, what's going to happen. But that's that was never really my intention, like to be the guy who is that. I just thought. I am one of these no meat athletes and we all are. And you know, it's, it's about the whole community, not right. me. Yeah, that's great. And you're also very, you're a very accessible guy, you know, and you're just saying, Hey, I'm just a guy like you and I'm doing this stuff and here's what's working and here's what's not. What else we, what else should we talk about? 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because like- I, I know from my like own standpoint, when I was interested in becoming vegetarian, and I would be approached like at school because I was in grad school before I started all this blog mm-hmm. stuff. I would be approached approached by people with flyers and like they would have pictures of animals being slaughtered on them and all that. And like that opened my eyes and made me kind of want to do it and like look into it more. But on the other hand, it also like kind of turned me off in a way. I just thought to go vegan or go vegetarian means becoming someone like that, like becoming someone who stands around and hands out flyers. Becomes a political Yeah, an activist. Yeah. So I didn't really, I didn't really like that. And I think that actually kept me from becoming vegetarian or vegan for, you know, a few months or years longer than it would have otherwise. And that's not to say that those people are, are not doing something great. I mean, I think it's fantastic that people are out there doing it, but I, I just like to write in a way that I, that would have resonated with me back then mm-hmm. because I just think kind of being low key about it and saying like, yeah, here I'm, I'm doing this and it's working rather than saying you should do this because this will definitely work for you. And you know, you should feel bad about eating meat. Like as much as I, as much as it was an ethical decision for me, I try not to talk about that too much. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> it's a, it's a bit of a conundrum. Like if you show somebody there's, there's, there's two kinds of people. You show somebody the the film, you know, like a film like Earthlings, right? Mm-hmm. That's very graphic about how we treat our animals. And a person is either going to, a light's going to go off in their brain and say, I'm done with meat. I can't believe this. I didn't know this. Like, how could I, you know, how could I live this way? Or turn it off. I don't want to know about it. I, you know, this is, I don't, I don't care, you know, right. that kind of thing. Like people are pretty much into those two camps. I'd probably fall into the latter camp, you know, like that's how I didn't get into this for, for ethical reasons. And I've become much more compassionate and interested in those issues and much more aware of what's going on. And that's becoming a bigger part of my message, but it certainly wasn't initially. I think everybody has their own journey with that. And, uh, and you have to create a very, um, comfortable starting place for people where the message is accessible and not intimidating or frightening or off-putting or overtly political or anything like that. And you've done, you know, a great job with that. It's like, Hey, come and join the team. We're just going out running. Right. You know what I mean? Like yep. that's what it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, there, there are two groups of people and some people will be reached by the other message. And, uh, I mean, in part, in some way I was like, that's, was a big motivator for me from going vegetarian to vegan was actually the film Earthlings. Mm-hmm. And, but that, you know, I was only really ready for that because I'd been vegetarian for a few years. You mentioned that for you, it, it became more about ethics, more about compassion as you, after you had got involved in it. And that's how it was for me. And I think it's that way for a lot of people. You just sort of, once your eyes are open to it, you start to uh, see what's going on and kind of want to go further with it. Right, right. Um, so, so you're in, what were you studying in grad school? I was studying applied math, which of course really? comes in so handy for being a blogger. It about probably does. Fitness. You probably know how to code, don't you? I can look at HTML and like sort of understand oh. what's going on. I can't really write it. <laughs> I can code other. I can code other things. So, so what was the plan before you know you became the no meat athlete? What what were you going to be doing? Some sort of financial math job. Like my my PhD, which I abandoned, was uh, on modeling how stock options, you know, moved. It was exciting. I loved it, but you would have been so rich. I mean, more rich than I am now, (laughs) for sure. But I think I would have been far less fulfilled. I think you know, and 
so I don't know. Th- th- that was the plan. In some way, though, gra- like I just somehow knew I was never actually going to do that. Like as much as that mm-hmm. was the official stated plan, I, in some way, school was kind of a procrastination until I, or just something to do until I found, you know, what I was really after, right. and I didn't know what that was. You found it so early, though. You know, it's it's great. I mean, it takes some people have to go through, you know, the midlife crisis to figure that out, or maybe they never ever do. They just resign themselves to a to, you know, they feel like they have to pursue a career for financial reasons or, or whatever. For So for you to be able to have like the self-awareness to develop that at such a young age, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, for some reason, I never really questioned that. Like I just, from, even when I was a little kid, said I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna grow up and do the nine to five job thing. It just, it just never seemed like an option for me because I saw my dad doing it and just thought, he just didn't seem very happy with that. And I couldn't imagine spending that many hours of your day at something that you really didn't like. And I think it's awesome that he did that for our family. I mean, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. But I just, for me, it just kind of never seemed like an option that I would long-term be working for somebody else. It just didn't really right. interest me. So when, was there a moment where you realized that you could turn this blogging thing into actually a vocation? Was there like a tipping point moment or did slow evolution? You know, there was really no tipping point And I've thought about that a lot. There, I always kind of expected that at one certain day, like there would just be avalanches of traffic because it would have this exponential growth. And one day it would, you know, tip as, as the tipping point is about that never really did happen, but it's just been a gradual growth, like very much the same rate. Uh, I mean, the growth rate increases obviously as the audience increases because you can Mm -hmm. reach more people more quickly, but, uh, it really, it took, it took kind of the courage and confidence to put out a product and say, this is shifting from me experimenting and telling telling you about what I'm doing to saying, here's how to run your first marathon on a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. And that was a scary thing for me to do. Like it was hard to take that position and, and, you know, open yourself up to criticism when you're telling people how to do something right. because someone could very easily have said, well, who are you to tell us how to run a marathon? You've, you know, you good, you qualified for Boston, but you're certainly not in the Olympics or anything. So I had to get over a lot of stuff to do that. But once I did it, then it was, it was pretty clear that this could be like could support our family. Not not right then, but it was clear right. that had, if I kept doing this and things like that, then uh, we would reach that point. So the first the first product that you put out was the roadmap for the marathon. That was or the was first that- like official branded product. I had put out one before that. Uh, this kind of goes back to like internet ninja stuff, but this is what I want to know about. <laughs> the audience probably doesn't, but <laughs> no, I do. They <laughs> But uh, I had a I had written a post about uh, pinole and chia seeds because I'd read about them in Born to Run. Uh-huh. Oh, I think I saw and, I read that. Yeah, yeah, and I was all into cooking, so I was so excited to go go home and try this stuff and actually make it, which I think very few people actually did with pinole because it just seemed like a weird food. But I went home and kind of wrote a post about how I made it and how I tried it for runs, and that started getting tons and tons of search traffic. So I said, well, you know, this blog could certainly use a little kick in the pants, and the you know financially that would that would help. Uh, just help me realize that I, that I can do this and support my family one day. So I wrote a little ebook. I worked with my sister, who's a great vegan baker, mm-hmm. and we put together because the pinole, you know, as much as it may have worked for the tarhumar, it wasn't the most appetizing thing. I mean, it was just kind of this right. really smoky corn meal stuff. So she and I worked and made a whole bunch of recipes based on that, like put it in brownies and whatever all kinds of different foods, uh, like a smoothie even based on it and all these different things and just made a little ebook, a little cheap ebook that 
I advertised on that post that was already getting all this traffic. Right, your Pinole, uh, yeah. your Pinole recipe book. Yeah. So, I mean, that did uh-huh. really well because there were all these people showing up to that site from Google every day. Just right. for whatever reason, that ranked really highly in Google. And so I just figured that'd be a good little stepping stone. And, uh-huh. and it was. It was a good first product to put out. Right. That's cool. So you have a, you have a sister who's vegan. So this She's is... She's not. She was. Oh, she, she was. She was vegetarian. She worked in a vegan bakery as their baker for a long time and- uh, she's great at it. And she's a great cook, but not right. vegan. I gotcha. So when does the when does the transition from vegetarian to completely plant based occur? That was about two years after the initial decision to go vegetarian and start the blog. Uh, pretty much immediately, I just stopped drinking milk. I just didn't really want it. I kind of learned about some of the 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 ways that milk may be very unhealthy for you, and there's certainly a lot of argument from from people whether it is or not, but most people in, in the plant-based community have read or at least heard about the studies that, that you know demonstrate the link to lots of reproductive cancers and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I cut out milk pretty much immediately, but cheese was something that was still always in the picture. And I, you know, I would get cheese pizza on weekends when I wanted it. But over the course of two years, I just gradually phased that stuff out. I just, as I learned, learned more about it, watched Earthlings, just started to feel worse about it. I just gradually got rid of it, not with any concerted effort or anything, but once I had actually tried to go vegan and I kind of tried to force it and said, I'm just going to go vegan for a month and see what happens. But by the end of that month, I, I realized I was not ready. Like I just was counting down the days till I could eat cheese pizza again. Mm-hmm. So I just let it happen naturally. And then finally got to the point where I said, the only reason I'm not vegan is because I still eat cheese once every two weeks or something. So all it takes, like as, as hard as it is to give up cheese, all it really takes is me to actually decide it and say, this is it. And once I did, you know, it wasn't hard at all because it was just the matter of not having cheese once every two weeks. But it took actually making that decision because without it, I, w- I would have just kind of kept going on that path. And right. <clears throat> so about two years. About how long. Cheese was hard for me. Yeah, I mean that's what everyone everyone who I talk to who's vegetarian but wants to go vegan is stuck on right. cheese. They think you. It just seems like it's in everything and it tastes really good and uh, it's also the thing that that I noticed when I cut it out finally that made the biggest difference in how I felt. Like I didn't feel that different not eating meat and I didn't, it wasn't that hard actually. I didn't crave it tremendously, but cheese I had a really powerful craving for. And it, it was like, I just suffered through a couple of weeks to kind of get to the other side of that. But the, the difference in my energy levels and how I felt and how my body would perform athletically was pretty, pretty dramatic. Yeah. I tend to believe that from my experience and, and many others, that dairy is probably more of a harmful food than meat is. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly a more unnatural one. Like if, even if you look at the, the paleos types, most the ones who are purely paleos, they don't. They're not eating dairy, right? Not very much. Mm-hmm. So we agree there, and we also agree on that eating whole foods is is really good. Like people who are doing paleo right, they're not getting hamburgers at McDonald's or frying bacon that they get at the mm-hmm. grocery store. Not to say that we have a lot in common because there's certainly the huge ethical divide, but uh, I think, you know, I tend to look at, at paleo and vegan, or the healthy version of vegan and the healthy version of paleo is not really all that different. It's trading the meat for the grains and the beans maybe, but that's maybe only 20% of the diet or so. Yeah, I just did a, I did a podcast interview with Abel James who has a podcast called The Fat Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of yep. it? And and he's he's pretty, you know, out there on the internet doing lots of stuff and, and uh and we had a nice chat and, and he he said, uh, yeah, you know, if you were to put up a Venn diagram, like the overlap between paleo and, and vegan is, you know, they're almost almost concentric circles on top of each other with, the, of course, there's the meat and the 
the grass fed and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to differ on that, but there's more commonality, I think, than people realize. And there's a lot of energy behind, excuse me, kind of, you know, putting these two camps in a ring and letting them duke it out and fight to the death. And, and I'm sure you experience a lot of that angst on the internet or people that want you to engage on that. And, uh, and I do as well. And, and it, it's, it's a weird thing that I still have trouble, like kind of wrapping my brain around how to approach, you know what I mean? Like I want to create like with this podcast and with my site, like a, a site that anybody can come to and feel like, Hey, I want to experiment with eating more plants and it's cool. And we don't have to put labels on this and divide ourselves into camps and get into some war about X, Y, and Z. Um, and then I, but then I like, well, I have this issue with paleo and that issue with paleo, but is it worth me highlighting that and then sort of losing the forest for the trees? And <clears throat> You wrote a really interesting uh, article for the Huffington Post recently on this very subject. So right. tell us a little bit about where you're coming down on this. Yeah, I mean, where I come down on it is that people ask questions like, well, how come these two diets that are polar opposites are getting popular at the same time? Like, which one is right and which one is wrong? And my answer is always that if you look at 95, maybe 99% of people who aren't paleo or vegan, like they're eating fast food all the time right. and, and Doritos and just like mostly total junk. And I'm not criticizing cause I did that exact thing. And I, and I even thought it was healthy. Like I would eat, like I said, the chicken breast and the brown rice and between I'd have potato chips or whatever. And I thought I was doing okay. Not even thinking about vegetables, but I think what's happening, like if that, if you look at it as a spectrum of who's eating whole foods and who's not, I mean, it's everybody else way and then way, way on the side are the paleos and the vegans kind of off on their own little section of it. So I tend to think we're really, really similar. And like I said, the, the ethical divide is, is enormous. And you know, that's, but, but even when you talk about that stuff, like paleos are, they do want the type of food that they think is nutritious. I mean, as far as beef and meat goes is generally the more sustainably raised type. So even if as a vegan, you think it's wrong to eat meat, you know, there's also the argument that they are doing better than others who of course. Eating yeah. So absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I tend to incur like if a friend tells me, yeah, we just started eating paleo. Like, I don't know, like you said, it's hard to know what to say. Like, I don't want to say, well, you should try being vegan too. Like just try it without the meat. Right. But at the same time, I'm like really happy that they are coming off of the processed food diet and doing one that is not because they're probably not going to eat more meat as a result of going paleo. It's probably the same or, or maybe even less if they're doing it truly yeah, there's there, well, there, <clears throat> excuse me, I have something in my throat. There's a there's a div, there's a dividing line between true paleo and maybe there's disagreements about what true paleo is. But there's a also a very strong perversion of paleo out yeah. there right now, which is this huge emphasis on which you know starts to border on Atkins, where it's this super low carb approach and it's all about eating bacon and it's very meat focused. And I don't think that's true paleo at all, but there's this perception that that is paleo. And so there's a lot of people walking around thinking they're eating a paleo diet when they're eating tons of bacon for breakfast every day and they, they refuse to eat any fruit whatsoever right. and you know all this kind of thing. So so what is you know what is it that we're talking about? I think we have to def- we have to define the parameters of the paleo that we're talking about. Sure. And it's tough because you know even even if you're eliminating that kind of marketing paleo the one that that does promote the bacon or in you know all the all the Atkins type food even once you eliminate that, 
you still like there's not really a consensus on what paleo is. There's just there's mm-hmm. so much argument, and that's one of the big criticisms, of course, is that you know people will point out that you know even the the fruit that we eat now or the potatoes we eat now or whatever are much different than they were back then, of course. Mm-hmm. And then there are, you know, geographically all different people ate different things and some apparently even ate grains and beans and Right. You were gonna eat what was readily accessible to you. Right. And that depended on where you lived. But right. I think it would in general, unless you were an Inuit, that you know you're gonna be eating a lot more plant based foods because they're easy to find and they're in your environment as opposed to stalking an animal for several days and then killing it and then eating an animal which is going to be way more lean than any animals that are around today. Yeah, I've heard it said that that a better word or better term than hunter gatherer would be gatherer hunter because we probably gathered first most of the time and then when there was, you know, when the tribe got some sort of big kill, you know, there would be meat that day or for a few days. and Right, it was, it was a special thing. Yeah, I mean, treated very differently. Yeah, I think that's accurate. G- gatherer, hunter, but, you know, that's not sexy. Hunting is <laughs> no, sexy and hunting is masculine and we can all yeah, you know, pretend like we're, yeah, so there's there's gender, uh, there's gender identity issues that get pulled into it and what does it mean to be a man and be masculine? And uh, paleo, you know, from a marketing perspective has been very effective at tapping into kind of the primal male instinct and this this whole kind of hunter thing, which, uh, you know, and then there's debate about, just like you said, like, well, what, is, what were we doing exactly? And I, I don't know that there's true consensus on, on, on the, the anthropology of the era, the time. No, I mean, of course not. There was a TED talk that, or TED, maybe a TEDx talk recently that came up and just kind of that there was a, it was a woman, right? I yeah. Remember, I don't remember I her, name. her name. But she was a. But the paleo people are all pissed off about that, and then there's all these other things debunking what she's saying, and yeah, you can go around the merry-go-round forever, and you can go on the internet, and you can find support for whatever point of view you are, and you know, paleo isn't the only thing that gets perverted. I mean, the vegan diet isn't inherently healthy. There's very there's plenty of variations on that, and just like what we were talking about before, all the junk food, vegan food that you can get now, so you can be unhealthy on a on a on a vegan diet. There's a difference between a vegan diet and a, and a whole food plant-based diet, I guess. Yep, absolutely. Just like there's a difference between a paleo diet and a, you know, and a whole food one. <clears throat> and I think, you know, I te- just because that's kind of where I'm coming from is with the accepting and welcoming thing that I tend not, I don't want to get into that fight and I don't, like being but you're the it. one who wrote an article in the Huffington Post but about it, said, it, and you took a very like gracious, neutral, you know, welcoming position, and you still got slammed in the in oh, some of, of the course. comments. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the Huffington Post. You can't win this. You, no, absolutely not. Yeah. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment. 
so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. But I like how you, you know, you root everything that you do in your own personal experience, you know, and that's, 
you know, that's very different from preaching or saying you should or shouldn't do this. It's just like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is working for me. You want to come on board? Like, hey, let's let's walk this path together and see what happens. I don't know where it's going, right? Yeah, that's it. And I, you know, I'll try to give tools to help people do it. So it's like, if you if you do want to make the change, here are some ways that I think you can do it successfully. Uh, but as far as like influencing, I'll, the only thing I'll try to be is an example. I don't want to be uh, at all telling someone they should do this. Like I, I can I can point to different research and say, here's some research that says that a vegan diet is in the long term really healthy. And then I'll say, and here's some research that doesn't agree with that. So just kind of showing both sides, and then you know pick the one that that resonates with you and that seems right to you. Mm-hmm. And what I hope I can be is like just someone who is an example to, 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 you know, to the everyday person, the person like me who isn't an elite athlete, but, uh, you know, has aspirations of doing, or just has, you know, has some part of them that's kind of whispering that they can do something special. And for me, that, that special was qualifying for the Boston Marathon. And then the hundred mile, was also a mm-hmm. huge, you know, big thing for me. But, you know, I'm not trying to be like an example of athletic performance. I'm trying to be the example of someone who, uh, you know, a very average normal guy who is doing some pretty cool things like for, for my body and like for where I'm coming from and doing them on a plant-based diet. Like that's, that's what I want to be. Right. And that's, I'm not trying to, uh, no, you're saying if you're interested in this, like I've, I've been doing this for a couple of years and I'm happy to try to help you. Absolutely. Right. Yep. As opposed that's to it. you need to come over here and here's why. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> those are those are two very different messages. They are, and they reach different people. Mm-hmm. So, so what led to the hundred miler? Uh, I just after the fifty or the fifties, uh, I had read Born to Run, and hundred just seemed like. I well, mean, let's back up. When did you do your first fifty? I did my first fifty about six. Uh, let's see, two thousand June two thousand ten, North Face in DC, and uh, didn't find it terribly difficult. I mean. Going from marathon training to that wasn't a huge jump. It just because you slow down so much, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that, and then three months later, I did the Vermont fifty. Kind of burnt out a little bit on ultra running after that, doing two of those in three months, and just yeah, that's that's a lot. It was especially for someone who hadn't done it. I mean, people, you know, I have a friend who who ran a few years in a row. I think he ran Western States and Badwater. Wow. And and he routinely does. His name's David Pasconka, by the way, and he uh, he actually placed in the top ten at Badwater a couple years ago. But he, you know, he does like a hundred miler every two weeks. It seems like throughout the summer, and wow. it's just amazing to me that someone can do that. But yeah, for me, then two fifty milers in three months was was a ton. And uh, just I took like a break, a two year break or so from going after really serious running goals. But I felt like this hundred was kind of this monkey on my back, and I had I had even signed up for one after Vermont and thought I'm just going to do it now. Like I'm in shape to do this now. Now's the time to train and ramp up. And really never even went for a single run like in preparation for that race. I signed up and said wow. and announced on my blog I was going to do this race and just couldn't get myself like it was just an overwhelming distance to me. I didn't it, it felt impossible to me and that's that's why it was so inspiring but it was I think at that point it was so big a goal that it was like you know I just I couldn't even get started on it. Right. So I took some time off uh actually read your book and Scott Jurek's book within about a week of each other and after that said I'm going to get this 100 done and that was I guess back in June 2012 or so. I don't know exactly when your book mm-hmm. came out. When did your book come yeah. out? You know? May 2012. Yeah. I think Scott's book came out maybe, I don't know, it was essentially the same time. Right. So I read that and said, I'm going to get this done. And I guess it was only, 
yeah, only about a year and two or three months later, I did. And I, you know, I, I used Brian Powell's plan from uh, irunfar.com. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called Relentless Forward Progress, the book. I'm sure you've heard of it. And uh, yeah, I maxed out at 55 or 60 miles per week. So not all that much training, but did a 12-hour race as like my big pre-race, uh, did a 50K before that. And right. It was reasonable. And I, I really have felt like this diet has allowed me to not get injured because I just, you know, that would have been unthinkable for me to do those kind of distances, 50K, 50 mile, and 100 within two months or so. Mm-hmm. And treating those other two runs as training runs, I mean, instead of races, that was a, that's a huge step mm-hmm. to get to there. So yeah, I'm, I'm a much different runner than I was back in those Boston qualifying days. And uh, it's hard to say, but I think a lot of it has to do with the diet. And I don't know, it's just been, it's been a fun like it was a really fun, enjoyable few months training for that because I got to just go slow, not worry about speed work, put on some headphones, listen to podcasts and audio books right. and things. And I really enjoyed it. It was a great experience. And actually getting it done was incredible. It's it's a different kind of training <clears throat> when you kind of you have you just let go of this idea of speed altogether. And then you're you're in this aerobic, like sort of perpetual aerobic state when you're training. Which once you kind of acclimate to that becomes almost like this soothing kind of active meditation and you start to look forward to it. Like as long as you're not overtraining where you're getting overly fatigued, it actually becomes really enjoyable. Yep. And that was something really, I mean, I said that your book was a big part of the inspiration to, to do that, but the, also the how-to kind of, I read how you had for, I don't know if it was several weeks, several months, did not let your heart rate get over the 70% or whatever right. that threshold was. So I felt like that was kind of someone telling me it was okay to train that way for a mm-hmm. long time. And then maybe at some point shift into speed training, but never really got around to that. I just kind of no. kept it. Well, kept you it don't really that. need it for a hundred miler. You know, it's not. No. I mean, if you're not trying to win it. Right. So. It's like what I said in the, yeah, exactly. If, you know, it's like what I said in my book, which is the prize, which my coach told me, I don't, I didn't come up with this, but the prize doesn't go to the fastest guy. It's to the guy that, that slows down the least, right? you know? So yep. if you can just, you know, like, listen, if you could run a hundred miles at like 830 pace without slowing down, you're <laughs> yes. killing it. Right. You know what I mean? So it's yep. like, we're not talking about running fast here. And I had this, you know, I went and crewed for, we were just talking about this before the pack, podcast. I was uh, one of the crew guys for Dean Carnazes at Badwater. And, and I get people email me questions or ask me on, social media, like, well, what kind of pace was he running and how fast was he going? And I was like, (laughs) you don't understand. (laughs) Like, this is like a march, you know what I mean? More than a run. Like, yeah, there's running, but there's a lot of stopping. There's a lot of walking and there's a lot of changing your shoes and, and, uh, pace, you know, just the idea of pace is like, right. You just get thrown out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Very different experience for sure. It was, mine actually took me 28 hours and people were like, well, well, what's the pace? And when I tell them it's like 17 something per mile, right. it all of a sudden the, the accomplishment, like they're, they don't, they're, yeah. they're not impressed anymore that yeah. I ran hundred miles. I was like, oh, I could probably do that for like 50 and then um, maybe I could do it for a hundred. Uh, yeah. And so I don't know. But and the training for a 50, you know, again, unless you're trying to win, I mean, the training for a 50 and the training for a hundred aren't that different. I mean, because your body can only take that much volume until you get to an elite level. So then it just becomes a mental thing of preparing yourself to kind of just be out there for that long. It seems like, and I don't know if this is because ultra running is kind of still a really niche sport and maybe very unexplored still in how the best ways to train is or best ways to train are, but it almost seems like the best way to train for a hundred is to train for a 50 and then a month later, run a hundred right. like, and just kind of <clears throat> fool around in between then and like, mm-hmm. don't hurt yourself and don't do too much. Well, there's a lot of guys that just 
their big training, their big runs, their big training runs are the races. And then in between right. them, they just do normal running kind of training. Yep. You know, that so they're definitely happens a lot with ultra running. Um, and I, I share an office with a buddy of mine, Greg Smith, and uh, he's gotten into ultra running and he's kind of on the 80, 10, 10 diet. Mm -hmm. he, he's probably more vegetables and greens than like a strict fruitarian approach. But for the most part, like he's very high carb, low fat, vegan diet. And he goes out and runs every morning, but nothing crazy. And he's done, and he just did his third hundred miler, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, dude, how do you do that without it training really that much? Right. You know, and he just, he just loves it, you know, goes out there and gets through it somehow. So yeah, it's different. Uh, it's, it's different mentally. It's a completely different approach, but it's cool that you did that. And, uh, and so now, so you've done two fifties and a hundred. Yeah. And a 12 hour race that was my training run for oh, the did. So uh -huh. that was slightly more than 50. So right. about three fifties. Right. Cool. And uh, let's talk about the book, man. Sure. Yeah. So the book comes out October 1st. Comes out October 1st. And so I want to talk about what motivated you to write the book first before we get into what's in it. Yeah, it was a lot of people have asked me that and I don't always have a great answer for it. Part of it was that I felt like the audience size of No Meat Athlete was at the point where, you know, the audience could support a book, as we talked about. I mean, they, they have helped it reach higher levels than I expected for a pre-order period, of mm -hmm. course. Um, you know, you see so many authors who write a book and I think think that that's going to be their life-changing thing and that's like, finally my message is going to be heard and then don't do anything to promote it and kind of expect the publisher to, to just do the work and mm -hmm. get it done or don't really have uh, a platform to promote it. So I just didn't want to do it before then. I didn't want to do it and write it and put all this energy into it and then have nobody really care or notice that I had done this. So that was part of it. Uh, I also, it's kind of like what we said, that that progression from just doing an experiment and sharing what I'm learning and being as transparent as I can about that to trying to become someone who is a teacher and, and stepping right. into that role which is a scary thing to do. And I just felt like after four years of, of blogging and doing that to an increasing degree, you know, being a teaching type of person, uh, I finally felt like I was comfortable enough to write, you know, 250 pages or so of mm -hmm. purely of that, you know, rather than saying, here's what I ate for breakfast today or here's what I ate for dinner today. Like that wouldn't make a very good book. Right. So, but I mean, but on the self-publishing front, I mean, you'd put out a number of digital products. You have your roadmap series where preparing for a marathon, a half marathon, and then more recently you put out the triathlon one and you have a uh, like recipe books. You, I mean, how many total digital products had you put out before this book? I think four, four. And then right. I have a, a run, like a Boston qualifying training site that I do with another guy, Jason Fitzgerald from uh, strengthrunning.com. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know. It felt like it was time to take this message to, hopefully, to people who, who have not found the blog. Like, you know, that, that's one of the great things about working with a publisher and having your book actually in Barnes & Noble is that you reach people who, who you know, maybe not, aren't, are just barely interested in this thing, like not even interested enough to Google it maybe. Right. But, but they will see a book on the shelf that has a title that seems like something that's interesting to them. And you know, a book, of course, is an excuse to get media coverage, excuse to go on a book tour and hang out with, with fans of the site. I mean, that's right. That's so much what it is more than like, you know, I, like, I don't know that it's going to have any sort of positive financial return, me going around the country and staying in hotels every night. <laughs> yeah. But, but it that's was like- That's why publishers don't let, don't uh, no, do right. book tours for, right? You know, you go, I mean, 
look, I did a plenty of things where I showed up at Barnes and Nobles for this or that and like three people come. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, I wouldn't come. I don't go to bookstore events, you know, so. Yeah, and I fully expect that that will happen, you know, from time to time there will be just sort of these dud events. But what I'm hoping, and that was a big thing, is I tried to make sure that all these events involved runs or like going out to a cool restaurant or, you know, whatever, just things that aren't people standing around and then having me sign books. Like I didn't want it to be that. And I, I just felt like it was almost an excuse to go around the country and an excuse to have a PR person at the publisher email radio stations and magazines in those right. areas. So that, and really not so much that like, I don't know, just from my experience, that sort of thing doesn't have ever a huge impact on traffic to the site or anything like that. Like doing offline promotions, to me, they very rarely seem to have a big return online. But I think they reach so many people that, like just who have their TV or radio on or leaving through a magazine who otherwise wouldn't have cared a bit about what you're doing. So I think, you know, giving them this, getting this very, very low pressure plant-based message to them is something that is, you know, that's really like the goal of this book to me. You know, I want it to do that. And if it does that, then I'll have considered it a success. Right. I mean, what I like is that you're not waiting for somebody to do any of this stuff for you. And you really like taking the reins and you have control over kind of, how your message is, is getting out there and you realize that you have to do it yourself. And I think there's a lot of people who are under the impression, <clears throat> we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, you know, they write a book and they think like miraculously, you know, like they've, they've never been on Twitter before. And they're like, oh, well, I guess I need to get on Twitter now because I have a book coming out. But they, you know, so they're trying to like build an audience or create interest in what they're doing, but it's all backwards. It's like, right. you know, you took the time to really develop a loyal community and then came out with the book after you have those, that is a, already a healthy, active, you know, prospering community, which is the right way to do it. And you're not relying on some publicist to like sell your book for you or to do all this kind of stuff. You're going on, you booked your own speaking tour all on your own. You decide you're going to go to, how many cities are you going to go to? 40. Four, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> 40 cities on your own just to go like meet people. And I think... What I've no, what I noticed is in doing a lot of this stuff and making a lot of mistakes when when my book came out was, you know, you do some radio thing and you think that that's gonna suddenly that's gonna make people buy your book and it, it there's it's not a direct translation kind of thing, but what you are doing is just sort of contributing to the public consciousness whether they buy your book or not. Right. It's an opportunity to talk to people about something and whether they disagree or or agree, or it's just sort of they're, they're listening to it passively in the car and not really paying attention. You're just planting a little seed of like, hey, I'm doing this thing over here. It might be a little bit different than what you might've thought. It might interest you. Maybe it doesn't, but yep. they're kind of like, oh, well then, you know, a year from now, they're like, oh yeah, I right. remember that exactly. guy or I heard about that or whatever. And so you're just sort of fertilizing out there, you know? Right. Yep. And there's no way around just showing up in person and running with people and doing that kind of thing. So I love that, you know, like I, I didn't have the ability to go on a 40 city, like leave my family or take my family with me and do like, there's no way I could have done that. I did the best that I could, but I love the fact that you're, you're doing that and you, you're taking responsibility for the direction of how your message is getting out there. Yeah. There's, there's a guy who writes a lot of like, he used to write a lot of marketing books. His name's Seth Godin. I don't know if you've heard of him. Of course. He's big in the online yeah. space, yeah. But but like people, you know, I talk to people in the offline world and they're like, Who, who's that? And they just have no clue. But he has this concept called, he calls it pick yourself. And the idea is that instead of like waiting to be picked by the gatekeepers, you know, the publishers, the record producers, whatever industry you're in, instead of waiting for someone to pick you and 
and the rewards to actually being picked are becoming less and less as the independent thing is growing so much. Exactly. So instead of that, like take the reins and pick yourself. Just start putting your message out there and letting the audience decide if it's any good rather than one guy at the at the publishing company making that decision. Mm-hmm. So that's I mean, it's still a struggle for me that you know, it's so deeply ingrained in our consciousness and like that it's you get picked and then and then all the rewards come to you. And now like that's going away. It's easier to pick yourself and the rewards to getting picked aren't as great. So right. it's kind of like do it yourself. And then what's interesting is that once you finally do pick yourself and put yourself out there, that's when you actually then do, someone finds you and you do get picked. Right. That's the great irony. And, <clears throat> you know, as being an entertainment lawyer in Hollywood for a number oh, of right. years, you know, I, I have clients that I had, I'm not practicing anymore, but, you know, writing clients, directing clients, producing clients, everybody's trying to get their movie made or their TV sh- sold, TV show sold or what have you. And there's this gatekeeper thing, like, you know, you've got to sell your script to Disney or whatever it is, and then you'll, you will have made it, you know, and you're seeing that change with the way that technology has impacted that business where people are now able to make their own projects. And the idea of getting, you know, the, the sort of prize of getting your movie in a movie theater isn't as great as it used to be. And maybe you can just, you know, do your online release or your DVD release and just focus on what you can control and focus on making a quality product as opposed to trying to please the powers of that be of letting you, you know, giving you the keys to the kingdom because the kingdom ain't all what it cracked. It's cracked up yeah, to be anymore. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Right. Yep. And you know, I go to, I got into town last night and my parents took me straight to politics and prose, which is a really nice bookstore here mm-hmm. in DC to go to a reading. A friend of theirs has a book that just came out. And of course, like every time I go into a bookstore, I'm like, oh, I wonder if they have my book. It's <laughs> yeah. politics and prose. They probably don't, you know, like it's just like a political, you know, a lot of political and history books. They had one copy, you know, one paper book copy stuck way in the corner. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know that having my book in a bookstore is really all that important or impactful. Right. You know what I mean? It's like sort of if good you, for your ego, but like that's, yeah, it's I good. To, that it's it's cool. It makes me feel good that like, oh, that this, this really cool bookstore is carrying my yeah. book, but you know, they have one paperback copy that you know right but like you said it, it's about having that happening in thousands of bookstores right and someone glancing at it and picking it up and maybe not buying it but then then uh then they'll see my book and buy mine instead exactly yeah, they, yeah, they're like i'm tired of that guy i want this new guy <laughs> he's gonna give me the answer right until right? they find out that i didn't really you know that i'm not the, oh come uh, on yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm You're the being guy. Honest. Don't sell your. Yeah, you are. Come on, man. Listen to Seth Godin. That's right. He's he's speaking to you, right? <laughs> he the, is. Icar- the Icarus Absolutely. effect. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, and he's a guy who has a massive following, and then decided that he wasn't going to publish. Um, that he was going to self start self publishing his books, mm-hmm. and I'm you know he's been rewarded a billionfold for that, no doubt. Oh yeah, he's. I mean, he's he's so well respected in in the yeah. community and people who do what we do. You know. They're, He's just like the guy. <laughs> so tell me about, so what's in the book? It's in, it's divided into two big sections because I had this kind of conundrum at the beginning and I didn't know, did I want to write this for the person who was already vegan or vegetarian and wanted to learn how to become like a really good example of that, that being vegan doesn't necessarily make you weak. Like the person who wants to get into running or is it for the person who is an athlete and is maybe just the slightest bit curious about how do you do this? with a plant-based diet, like kind of giving them a guidebook to, to say, here's how you can do it. So I really had to write it for both of those people, which was a scary thing to do because you're always, you know, you're really always supposed to pick 
one person that you're writing to. Mm-hmm. So I didn't wasn't able to do that. I had to write it to several people, which is a bit of a risk, but I think it turned out really well. And uh, it's so it's like it's really a guidebook to a plant-based diet. There's stuff in there that's kind of like here's how to make the transition and here's why it's something worth considering. Like here are the really the benefits that I've noticed and that many others who I've talked to have as well and what the science says and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then there's more advanced stuff. I worked with uh, Matt Rusigno, who is a mm-hmm. vegan registered dietitian, and himself. He's uh, he's done I think several, a few Ironmans or Iron Distance triathlons, and mm-hmm. the Furnace Creek 508, I think it is. The, right. It's like put on by the Badwater people, but it's a 500, 500 mile, mile bike, bike race. race. Yep. Yeah, he's and, great. He's cool. Yeah, so I worked with him so that he could. Be, I mean, as much as I feel like I've learned about nutrition and this diet in in four or five years of doing it and paying a lot of attention to it and reading as much as I can about it. Like I, you know, I still don't have the letters behind my name that that are a signal to people that I do know what I'm talking about. So I wanted to work with someone who I really agree with, who shared my philosophy with food, but who had a little bit more of a scientific background in it. And uh, that's that's he helped me in. I mean, throughout the book, but one chapter was really like all his, and he goes pretty deep into the nutrition there. So you know, in that way, it's for people who are already vegan and want to do a better job of of choosing foods that will will help them with their sports. But then the other section is how do you get started with running? And I, I'm a runner, so that's kind of the topic that I wanted to write about. Mm-hmm. I tried, because it's called No Meat Athlete, I felt like it should at least be applicable to other sports. So I tried to keep the advice sort of general, but obviously there's some stuff that's like running form related that's specifically for running. Uh, and then a few training plans, like how to you know get a first 5K or 10K finished, uh, half, two half marathon plans, and just a whole lot about different, you know, like the three or four keys to running form that I think are really all you need to worry about. And there's even like a habit change component. Like how do you get started running, but do it in a way that you're not going to get burnout after three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. Similarly with diet, how do you transition to the diet without burning yourself out? Like there are different ways and different approaches to that. But another good thing was that I worked a lot of people, I had a lot of just friends from the internet world and authors contributed little sections. So like Leo Babata from Zen Habits, who's just total expert in habit change from all the research he's done. He contributed a few little sections about the habit change component. So again, it was that sort of we mentality versus just me. And it was just really fun to bring in lots of experts and then readers as well and to share their little inspiring stories. And and there are recipes, of course, and you know, everything you would expect in, in like a guidebook to this right. lifestyle. Yeah, that's great. Um, Leo is amazing. He is. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how he does it all. He, I think he has like uh, six kids. Six kids. Yeah. yeah, well, I think one's in college, right? Or maybe yeah, two. right. One's away. But uh, he just started um, this new site called Unschoolery. Mm-hmm. Have you checked that yep, out? I have. And we're I'm, very I'm in love with it. Yeah, it's great. I mean, because we're unschooling our kids. And, oh, you are? Okay. And that's been a huge like resource and, and like sort of source of just making me feel better about making that decision because it's kind of a scary thing. And the fact that yeah. he launched it with his reputation and kind of what he's done, it's just, it's been a really cool thing and he for my did, wife and I. He is also a vegan runner. He, he launched mm-hmm. a site uh, called Seven Day Vegan that was about, and you contributed something to it, I think. Right, yeah. That was about helping people take a little vegan challenge for seven days. So, I mean, he's, he put so much good out there into the world. It's just, it's amazing. He's a great guy. Mm-hmm. It's cool. So full comprehensive guidebook. What interests me beyond the sort of ABCs of like, here's how you eat and here's your recipes and here's good running form is the psychology aspect of it. Um, because, because honestly, and this is something I've learned from kind of going to these veg fests and speaking at a lot of these and I'll, I'll see some of the same people that I saw the year prior 
<clears throat> and they're like, yeah, I'm here, you know, I'm coming to see Dr. Gregor again, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and they're still not looking so healthy, you know, and it's sort of like they're having, they understand intellectually uh, what they need to do to change their life or their eating habits or their lifestyle habits, but they struggle with incorporating them or making them stick, you know, and it, it's not about the information or self-knowledge. It's about the ability to, like you said, change the habit or translate the information into action that is sustainable. So what do you think? Like, I'd, I'd like to hear more about kind of your approach to that. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm like a total nerd for the the self-help genre and the Tony mm -hmm. Robbins type stuff. Like, that's actually one of, like, that was the spark for me that made me decide to go vegetarian and then start the blog was I went to a Tony Robbins seminar. Like, oh, really? Day, did you walk on the coals? Walked across the you coals, did? Yep, did all <laughs> nice. that, yeah. bought in totally to it and loved it. Like, I... I think there's so much good stuff to, to it's not for everybody for sure. It's, well, it, it works because look at you, you maybe you wouldn't yep. have started No Meat Athlete, right? I don't think I would have. I mean, I, like I said, I was in grad school and I wanted to start a business, but I just wasn't, wasn't ever like ready to do it and like always found a reason to just wait. But, uh, yeah, so that was, that was the, the spark for it. But anyway, to answer your question and that, that sort of underlies it because I have like a little goal setting workshop in there that was like my little Tony Robbins mm -hmm. section. Uh, but I hope people like it. It's I like it. I love that kind of stuff. But anyway, the habit change. Um, what I'm learning. There's a great book called uh, the now. No, I'm sorry. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Right. That, that's really a good kind of comprehensive introduction to habit change. And it seems that I mean there are a lot of factors that go into it. The big ones are starting small. And like to take the example of fitness, starting out an exercise program. It's so easy to get. You know, to get excited, get inspired, and that's that's what it takes for a lot of people is to actually get really inspired to to want to make a change, and then once you once you've made that decision to be so excited about it that you're going to go to the gym for an hour a day, or you know an hour every other day, and people get in the gym and just like totally burn themselves out so that not only are they physically sore and maybe even unable to go back to the gym, but their willpower, their willpower is depleted, and that's something that's written about a lot now. Is that willpower mm -hmm. is a is a lot like a muscle, like it gets tired, and you actually run out of it, and it needs to rebuild. It can get stronger by practicing it and increasing it in increments, just like lifting weights. So what you really need to do, I think, is work on building up that willpower first and creating the habit. So, like something I learned from Leo is he says, if you want to start running, don't get out the door and try to run for half an hour the first day. Go out. And try to run for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And if you find yourself procrastinating on five minutes, then make it two minutes. So that, that's all you have to do. Or get outside with your shoes on and shut the door. And then if you decide to go a little bit of running, fine. But if not, count that as a success that you did it. And get yourself in the habit of doing that over and over. And granted, physical changes will be none in that first few weeks while you're developing that habit. But if you can go for a few weeks of five or ten minutes of running, just very gradually increasing... Your willpower, you know, you get used to it, and it becomes a habit that's ingrained in your head. And there, I mean, there's all kinds of things like following it immediately after a trigger. Like, if you want to, uh, let's say, you want to write every day for some reason. If you drink coffee, you could make that cup of coffee as soon as you take the first sip. That's your trigger, and you immediately follow it with the habit. Mm -hmm. And the brain starts to link that up. And of course, it doesn't have to be coffee. It could be any activity that you do. And then there's the reward aspect too. Is once your habit's done, is there something that's rewarding about? either the feeling of having done it or some external reward that you let yourself have a piece of chocolate or whatever. So there's that habit loop, like the trigger, the action, and the reward, which is also really mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's great. I mean, I think that 
what I see is, you know, people will come to me, they've never run before and they're like, well, which Garmin should I get? And which heart rate monitor? And like, should I be, how often should it be, you know, threshold training and inter- which days do I do hill repeats? And I'm like, you haven't even started running. Like what I hear, what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing when I look through, when I see through that is just creating a lot of noise and barriers that are actually preventing you from just going out and beginning. Right. You know, it's like, just go outside and run for 10 minutes, you know, like, don't worry about that. That stuff will sort itself out later, but yeah, create the habit, you know, and the sustainability of it comes with the momentum that occurs with the habit becoming more and more ingrained into your daily patterns. Right. Yep. And it gets to the point where, you know, once it truly is a habit, then it doesn't take any willpower. It's just something that you, you do. do. Yeah, you right. automatically do it. Like in, in some way you crave it. Like there are there are these intrinsic rewards to running, as you mentioned before, when you start mm-hmm. to feel this sort of meditative or relaxing feeling from running. I mean, it feels good to actually move, uh, especially if you're not moving too fast. So it becomes, it, 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 it transcends reflective into something that you actually look forward to, you know, yeah, as opposed exactly. to dread. And, and there's the exact the parallels with diet. I mean, you, at first, going from a full processed food, fast food diet to the way we eat, like, I mean, whole foods, lots and lots of greens, lots of raw vegetables, raw food. I mean, that's not terribly appealing to someone who's coming off of that fast food diet. Mm-hmm. But as it becomes a habit and you become used to it and your taste buds change and everything else changes, you start, I mean, I feel like I like that food now better than I ever liked fast food. It just, it just is so, I don't know, it's just so nourishing and delicious and you just feel great after it. So yeah, it takes time, but it does become a habit and, and you start to have, there's this intrinsic reward that you start to feel, but it takes a while to get there. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions. I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection 
worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I feel like the other barrier is this idea of perfection or projecting like perfection either upon yourself or a certain ideal. And whether that's diet, like if you say I'm a vegan and then, you know, I'm going to be a vegan, I'm going to do this vegan thing. And then you go two weeks and you have a cheese pizza, you know, and you're like, well, that was too hard. So much, so much for that. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, instead of just, all right, well, what was the, you know, what is the habit you're trying to form? Well, I'm trying to have more plants in my diet, you know, like like shift your perspective and look at it from a different perspective so that you're not setting yourself up to fail. Or if I'm going to be a runner, I'm going to run every day and then you miss a day, you know, and you say, well, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And and then you think you failed when actually you did something good. Look at all those days that you ran. Like, what are you going to do next? Let's focus on today and right now. That perfection mindset certainly has that, like, you get a streak going, like, if, if it's like you said, I'm going to be vegan. And then for some, there's something about that, that as soon as you fail at that, you're done. Like, that is mm-hmm. that is the end of your attempt at being vegan. Like, like 
Right, it's over with. Right. And you're a bad person <laughs> right, because right. you couldn't do it. Yeah, you let yourself down and you, you know, obviously you don't follow through on your commitments. You know, like for me, yeah. like the way I'm wired, like I'll go into like a shame spiral, yeah, you know, right. if I start thinking that way. Yeah, and, and the alternative, like you said, eating, like it's hard to fail in a single day at eating more plants. I mean, you might not eat more plants that day, but there's no all of a sudden epic catastrophic failure when now you have to stop because you failed, right? right? You can just get back on and keep right. going. And I think it is the little, it's the little things It's creating habits around the little things. Like I say to people all the time, you know, if they're eating the processed diet or they're junk food junkies or whatever, it's just like, Hey, you know what? When you get up in the morning, just start your day with a green smoothie. Like if you just make that one change, forget about everything else. You want to go to Jack in the box for dinner, fine, whatever, but just start your day with some kale and some fruit and, you know, something fresh and healthy and just do that. And don't worry about anything else right now. Just pay attention to how you feel. Yeah. And for some people, like, you know, to a year later, that could have been the start to, you know, they could be then the crazy raw, total raw vegan. Yeah, who knows? Right. And you have to have, you have to respect those people and say they're on their own journey. It's not up to me what that journey is going to be for them. Just empower them with a couple, you know, little things and see where they take that because it's incumbent upon them, obviously, eventually to make that decision for themselves. Yeah. So I have nothing more to say. About you don't? Are we done? I, about that? <laughs> no, I mean that, you know, that's like, you can only, you can say so much about here's how people should change. And then it's like, it's just up to people. It's up to people to change. Right. You know? In like, recovery, they say, you know, sobriety is not for those who need it. It's for those who want it. And that's true of anything. It's it, true it of diet. Anything. It's true of fitness, it's health or any kind of habit that you're looking to change. Like you can't. And even today I have couples coming up to me at where, one is doing better than the other with diet or whatever. And like, you know, I'm trying to get, I brought, what happens is I do this talk that I do and I, and I, quite often I'll see in the audience um, a couple, a woman and a man, and I don't know if they're married or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. And I, it's immediately obvious to me that the girlfriend or the wife has dragged the husband to this mm. thing because she's trying to get her dude to like eat better, right? And she figures she brings him to see me talk that that's going to make the difference. And I can see the guy sitting there like he doesn't want to be there. You know what I mean? He's like, I, I love my girlfriend or my wife. I'm doing this for her, but I really don't want to be here. And I just, and I just focus and then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm this presentation is about him. Like I'm going to try to make a connection with this guy. But ultimately I know that I don't have any control over that. And she needs to understand, or he, it could be he with her. It's, it's not a gender specific thing at all. Um, <clears throat> that you can't make these people want this change. They have to, that, that, that desire has to be internally driven or created. Yeah, of course it does. And yeah, I guess you can like, as a couple, as part of the relationship, you can, I guess, you know, lay the foundation or let that person know how much it means to you, you know, to be respected in your choices and that how much it would mean if they would sort of think about it. But yeah, you can't, you can't, make anyone change. I mean, it's just, it won't, it's hard enough to change when you want to. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, it takes work and it takes planning and it well, takes willpower. I think that the projection of one person onto another of, I want you to change, or I need you to change, or won't you please change actually creates resistance against sure, that because the sure. person who's on the receiving end of that, and I've gone through this before is like, because of that, they're all, they almost are like, they, it, it basically puts the barrier up where they become less likely to do it just out of like a sense of trying to create some self-sovereignty around that. Right. Like, you know, you can't tell me what to do or whatever. So how does that work in your marriage with your wife? 
I'm very lucky. She really, the day that I came home from that Tony Robbins seminar and said, I want to be vegan or vegetarian back then, she was like totally on board with it. Cause so we, that clarity came immediately on the heels of that, of that experience yeah, with Tony what's Robbins. What's funny is that, I mean, I had, I had been wanting to before that, but I had been in this mindset that you just couldn't do it as an athlete. But the last day of that seminar, uh, and I'm always embarrassed to talk about this because I feel like everyone just assumes Nobody's that listening. I would, everyone assumes I was brainwashed. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's listening. Okay. No worries. Right. It's just you and me. Um, but yeah, like the last day was about health and energy because you know, the first three days were, here's all this awesome stuff you're going to do and like set goals and break through barriers. And then it's the last day was, here's how to give yourself the energy to actually do that because it does take actual physical energy to, to stay up late and get up early and work at goals that are hard. So I think he promotes a diet that is pretty much vegan plus a little bit of fish. But I also had this ethical thing that was pre-existing about not wanting to eat meat. So I just took that as I would like to be vegetarian. And uh, yeah, I came home and, and she had, we'd had the discussion before about, we just didn't really feel right about eating meat. And actually before that we had, we had totally cut out uh, like all four legged animals for a whole year without really the, the plan or desire to go further. But we just said, we don't really feel right about eating pigs and cows. It just didn't seem right. Whereas somehow back then eating birds and fish, it just seemed like they were more distant from us, so we were okay with that then. You're such a speciest, specious, <laughs> yeah, like, speciesism. You got to be careful Specious. when you talk about, like, yeah. I mean, you will offend somebody with You're everything You're going to be in trouble. Say. Where should you see the comments? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> let's just not put this on Huffington right, Post. Um, but yeah, so I was very lucky. And then when I decided I wanted to be vegan, she, you know, we're, we're a really good match and we tend to kind of grow together in that way. And when I was ready, it seemed like, she was at the same she point. Was ready too. Yeah. So I've mm-hmm. been very, very lucky. And I, I see people who do struggle with this and say, I want to go vegan, but my spouse absolutely doesn't. Right. What it's do you a do? real problem. That would be tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you usually say in that situation? I say there are some books, like I think there's one called the flexitarian diet that this wasn't really the purpose of it, but they had a lot of meals in there where you could either put the meat in at the end or not. And it would work either way. Well, so that's I said, interesting. Yeah, so I said so you're it, making like, one meal, but just one's going to have. Yeah, and for the most part, it was throwing. You throw it in at the end, so it wasn't like you had to use two pots the whole time. You could just somehow serve it and like prepare the meat in some other dish, and then mm-hmm. add it in at the end. So, like to someone who is the cook in their house and they're asking, "How do I do this?" I do suggest that. Um, mainly, though, like as far as how do you actually get the person to change, I just the only thing I know how to tell them is just be an example, like. If you want someone to change, if you, if you want someone to be turned on to, to your vegan diet, don't, like you said, because they're going to put up barriers if you try to compel them to do it and try to convince them that they should be doing it too. Like be an example. If you are, if you are, whatever, let's just say the husband and you're 30 pounds overweight, like show your significant other that, that you, this diet is helping you, giving you more energy than you're going to lose those 30 pounds or you're going to go run a half marathon. Like if you're someone who's never, ever even considered or no one would ever consider that you would run a marathon like you're just not that type of person go do that and then people will look at you and say wow there must be something to what they're doing mm-hmm. like that's that's just the only way i know how to influence like i don't I, you know that's the only way that i want to so just be an example is always my right. advice yeah i think that's wise i mean just uh your actions speak louder than your words and do what feels right to you and you will attract the right people around you so yep. it's really about attraction rather than promotion. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and how about with, so you have two kids now, right? Two kids, a three and, and a half year old and a, and a four month year old. Uh-huh. Yep. And so how is it working with the diet with the children and how you're raising them? 
it's been really, really easy. I mean, the the youngest, the infant, she still breastfeeds and right. um, has formula when she takes needs care to. Of but that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's not a problem yet. Our son, uh, because he's just been raised with this, he, you know, to him it just doesn't. It's just weird that people would eat animals. Like he doesn't really, in some way, doesn't seem to believe that people actually do eat chickens when when they say they're eating chicken. Mm-hmm. So he's totally fine with it. I mean, he he loves the food we cook him. He, we have a garden too. And the other day he like some vegetable, he wouldn't eat it. And then my wife said, but we grew this in our garden. Cause he helped her like plant it and do some stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I'm inside blogging, of course, not, right. I just am not like the uh, outdoorsy garden guy at all. But, um, so once she told him it was from our garden and that he helped grow it, then, then he wanted more of it. He, he wanted to eat it and wanted right. seconds of it. He just loved it then. So I think that's such an incredible relationship with food, not necessarily because he's vegetarian, but just because we are so into what we eat and, you know, being connected to it, he is too, which is awesome. And like, I don't know when the day comes when he does go to a birthday party and everyone else is having hamburgers, how are we going to handle that? I don't really know the answer. We've talked about this before on on my podcast Mm -hmm. a little bit, but I think it'll be a very gentle approach. And if he does want to try things, you know, well, I want him to make the choice. I don't want to make the choice for him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we'll be pretty, pretty lax about it, but I, we're not going to cook anything in our house. that's not vegan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about, I mean, what you're saying really is if you can foster, uh, in the, in the child, an emotional connection to where the food is coming from. So he grew it in the garden. So then he's suddenly excited to eat a food that he originally didn't think that he was going to like. Similarly, what we do with our kids <clears throat> is incorporate them into the preparation of the meals and the cooking. So it's a, every every meal is an opportunity to teach your kid, like, hey, here's how we make this. Come and right. help. And then they learn how to make the foods that they like, and then that's what they want to make. That's what they choose to make because they know how to make it, and there's a sense of a pride of ownership that comes with that. And then they're wanting to make that choice, the healthier choice. Yep. And we do that to, to the extent that we can with a three and a half year old. Sometimes right. that goes awry a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And you got to be careful. Yeah. Don't put your hand in the Cuisinart, right. you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. You have to exercise a little parental guidance with that for sure. Yep. But um, that's good. I'll be interested to hear more about how, you know, how, how you're going to navigate it when the birthday parties and all that kind of stuff yeah. comes up because it does come up and, yep. and, you know, I've shared about it and I shared about it with you and, and on this podcast as well. I mean, we're, it's the same thing. Like we don't create any rules around it. Like if they, if that's, if my daughters go to a birthday party and they have cake, I'm not going to be the dad who says you can't have that because you're creating something for them to ultimately rebel against later. Sure. Creates a lot of resistance, but I try to empower them by giving them healthy foods and educating them about foods. And then, and then giving them the respect, even at an early age, to say, okay, I'm trusting you to make the right choice. And they go and they eat the thing that, that uh, you know, they want to eat that's not good for them. And I don't shame them or say you did something bad or you're a bad person. It's just like, okay, well, how do you feel? Oh, I feel sick. You know, okay, <laughs> right, well, just, right. yeah, just remember that. And, um, you know, it's cool. It's fine or whatever. And the more that it's self-generated out of them, like, hey, you know, I don't know that I want to eat that because that didn't make me feel good as opposed to that's going to make you feel bad. I don't want you to eat that. Right. Those are two very right. different things. Yeah, they are. And I'm, I'm actually just interested to hear these tips. I mean, this is actually really useful for me to hear that. But I feel like as much as I'm, as much as I never want to tell someone or be seen, you know, as telling someone they should do something and I know what they should do and what's best for them. It's also your job as a parent yeah, exactly. to that's do that, I say. right? That's part of so, your job as a parent yeah. is to tell them what's best and guide them. 
So, I mean, by all means, we will be explaining to him why we choose this diet, but there's not going to be any guilt given to him, you know, or, or my daughter, because right. she will also grow up. He's not the only one who mm-hmm. will. But uh, She will get bigger. Nah, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in denial of that. <laughs> She'll never be 20 and want to go out in some short oh, shorts or anything, I'm it sure. It happens fast. <laughs> Yeah, these days too. My nine-year-old is like nine going on 21. Yeah, frightening. So, but a great adventure. And so they're all, they're all, so they're, they're not, so this, this tour, um, you're doing this solo? Mostly solo. I'm going to have, the interesting, I'm the only one who's going on all of it, but at all different parts, there are different people who are going to be coming with me. Uh, My mom's actually going to join me for the first few dates of it which would be kind of cool because she's, she's not a vegetarian or vegan, but she's been very helpful to me and extremely supportive of like being a business, you know, entrepreneur and right. doing my own thing. And she's, and she's definitely has, has changed her diet as a result, you know, not too vegetarian or vegan, but, but moved that direction, which is cool. Um, yeah, my family's going to fly out to see me in Seattle and, and a couple places out West and then they'll fly back because we would just never try to drive the kids like, you know, 12 hours in the car one day mm-hmm. that wouldn't go too well. Uh, and then Matt Rusigno is going to join me for a little bit part of it, I think. Oh, cool. And where does he, is he in Port, where does he live? He's Portland? Based, no, he's in, uh, usually San Diego, but sometimes oh, he gets to LA yeah, apparently. Uh-huh. And then Doug, who, uh, does the podcast with me, who right. was at the booth today, he's going to come out for, uh, like between Phoenix and, and Austin, I think. So a lot of different people at different points. So it won't be too much alone time. So you're just going to get in the no meat athlete van. Right, Not my, and start heading yeah. heading west. Like, where is this going? Like, tell me where. So, where? What's next? Like, hit hit me with some of the upcoming. I mean, obviously, you can't tell me okay. all forty. But We're what good. are some of the cool like kind of events or cities that you're looking forward to hitting? And I'm sure you have a schedule on your site, right? Yep. Of all there the is places. a site. It's at uh, nomadathlete.com/book-tour, mm-hmm. and that has all the events there. Uh, I mean, first it's going to start with the East Coast: Philadelphia, Boston, New York. Then I'm going to actually interrupt the tour for a little bit to do a Ragnar relay with some friends, which was, mm-hmm. sounded like a good idea a few months ago. Now sounds like the worst idea I've ever had in my life. Yeah, you probably life. had this idea like, oh, it's going to be good because I'm going to be like, for the most part, away from my family. So I'll have time. I can get up in yeah, the morning right, and run. Right. And now you're here and you're like, oh, there's no time for any of that. No, right? Right, not <laughs> at all. Not, and like, I have to run 40 miles as part of this thing. And it's oh. like, I, and like I, I've run 12 miles as my longest run in the past since the hundred really. So, I mean, it'll, I don't doubt it will fine. get done because there are lots yeah. of breaks and things, but yeah. So then there's that. And, uh, and then it just starts to head out West. I mean, Ohio, Michigan, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And then what I'm really looking forward to is like the Northwest Seattle, Portland, just where, you know, it's just so far ahead of the East coast in terms of this lifestyle and diet. And I haven't really spent much time out there at all. So I'm really looking forward to that and being there with my family too. That will be very cool. Mm-hmm. And, California. I mean, there's all kinds of cool different things. There's like a, a vegan book fair in, in LA that happens to be when I'm in town. So I'm going to do that. Uh, I've been talking to Rip Esselstyn a little bit about meeting up in Austin and maybe trying to do some sort of event. I mean, I don't know if that'll happen, but cool. just lots of people all over the place. I'm going to do one with Leo from Zen Habits and wow. uh, Jesse from Sam of RT, who's a friend of Leo's and sometimes shows up on his site a little bit, but we're going to do like a little panel uh, Sid Garza Hillman, who has been on your podcast, yeah. that's actually where uh-huh. I met him. He's going to join me for one of the San Francisco events and maybe an Oakland event. So it's just like all over the place. There are all these cool people that are just happen to be there and, and that's great. we're going to do them together. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to all that. That's really cool. I'm glad you're going to see Sid too. Yeah. He's awesome. We haven't met yet. Oh, you haven't? Not, I mean, not in person. The power of podcasting. Man. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you. 
seriously, that's how I like. He sent me a thing that said, "Do you want to review my book?" And you get a bunch of those. So it's just you, for right. most, mostly, I'm just like in delete mode unless it seems really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I recognize his name from your podcast, and and uh, just we started talking and connected really well. Yeah, it's good. His book's great. Yeah, it book, is good. So. Very much the same attitude we're talking about of like right. just low key habit formation, not trying to be perfect. Very much in line with our message. And now he just started a podcast. Yep. I saw it. <laughs> it's all happening, man. I know. I know. Cool. So when are you going to be in LA? LA is uh, November 3rd. Okay. It's for a Compassion Over Killing event, actually, there at right. the Vegan Book Fair. And I'm, I I'm might be sure there. That, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, man. And uh, how's Asheville treating you? When did you move to Asheville? Like a year and a half ago or something yep. like that? Pretty uh-huh. much exactly. May 2012 uh, or April 2012. It's It's great. It's just like... To me, it's like the East Coast's West Coast. Like it's it's how you get all that stuff that's in Portland and mm-hmm. in, and in bigger cities too. But it's uh, it's in the mountains of North Carolina, so there's great trail running, big running scene, big vegan scene, uh, just a lot of hippies and weirdos. Like it's it's really right. a very funky place, but uh, we love it. It's just it's such a cool place, and it's it's amazing that you can that you can now work. You know, be location independent, and, mm-hmm. and not just with your own job, but like in even with with working for someone else, you can set things up. In many cases, where you can just go travel the world. I mean, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never been there, but everybody I know that's been there just says it's the greatest place. <laughs> it is. It's yeah. it's definitely a weird mix. I mean, it's also the weirdest place I've ever been. It's just it, the mix of types of people are there, and the dynamic. It's just because there's a lot of retirees there. There are a lot of people who. The thing about Asheville is there aren't that many jobs. Like there are a mm-hmm. lot of, if you want to be an artist and you're okay with kind of struggling and uh, I mean, you know, very few of the artists are very successful, but so there are a lot of like street musicians who are really good and they're the same musicians who play in the bars at night. And then there's, I mean, all, every other kind of art too, besides music. So there's that scene. And then there's the people like me who, who just have a good situation where they can work where they want. And then you've got the retirees. It's just like a weird mix of people. And it seems like everyone's kind of accepted there. Like you can you can go out in a polo shirt and you'll be next to the person who like smells bad and wears right. tie-dye shirt. And like no one cares. Like everyone's like kind of just cool with everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool for that. It's utopia. <laughs> Not quite. But. No. It sounds cool. No, it's great, man. Well, listen, um, thank you for taking all the time today. Thank you. I mean, this is, your podcast has always been to me like, the you know the podcast in this niche that's that's like the cool one and I was telling this to our our hen house the other day I was on theirs and like you know these are these are things that I just always think are like you know just so, like my our little podcast and I'm not this isn't me being modest our little podcast is like such a little like the setup you have here like we have we do it by Skype and like some days the mics don't work and the well, sounds that, bad. Believe, that happens. It just happened to me the other day. You know, <laughs> I just got this new fancy stuff, but, uh, but there's no, I mean, yeah, on Skype I've had, I've lost two podcast episodes. Oh, I did one with Michael Greger. I dropped the hard drive and it broke, you know, like I believe me, you know, <laughs> so. But still, I mean, it's, it's very, very cool to be doing this stuff and I'm, I'm honored that people want to have me on and guest. So it, it's, it's very, very cool. Of course, man. Well, uh, you're an inspiration and, uh, I love the book. I'm happy and proud to, uh, help support it. Um, so everybody needs to go and get this book. It's great. Uh, you're doing a great service and you're putting a lot of great information out there and you know, you're, you've, you've devoted your life to this. This is, you know, this is what you're doing. And, uh, you know, it's a very authentic message. 
Um, it comes from a really good place and, uh, I feel great about supporting what you're doing. So if there's anything else I can do to help you out, man, <laughs> you've done plenty, man. I mean, and from inspiration standpoint alone, you've done plenty. And so I really, really appreciate that. Oh, thanks, man. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the full, what's the full title of the book? I don't know that I know the full title is long. I sometimes yeah. botch it myself. It's no meat athlete run on plants and discover your fittest, fastest, happiest self. And that happiest is kind of my little warning that it's going to be a little bit of self-help goal setting stuff. Right. That's, I had to sneak that in. All right, cool. And the best place for people to check that out and find it is on Amazon. Amazon or would you works, like to go to your website? It really doesn't matter to me. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, if you're more into supporting right. independence. Uh, if you want to see it on my site where I have an info page with like lots of nice things that people like you have said about it, that's uh, nomeatathlete.com slash book dash info. Okay. So, so check all that check out. Check that out, please. Yeah. If you do want to buy it on Amazon, click through the Amazon banner at richworld.com first. That. And then we, we're both happy, right? Absolutely. <laughs> there we I'd go. I'd be thrilled if people did that. Um, and then um, <clears throat> just nomeatathlete.com. You can literally go to his site and in, he has so much content on there. Just search for what you're interested in, anything related to diet, nutrition, running, fitness. And uh, he's sure to have a post up there. Um, tons and tons of great information. So go there first. And uh, you're on Twitter, No Meat Athlete. On Twitter, No Meat Athlete. Facebook, Facebook. No Meat Athlete. Yep. So in terms of like the social networking, is you're, you're more Facebook than Twitter guy, right? Yeah. I mean, you, how does I, that work for I you? I love Twitter and the idea of it. And it's awesome for connecting with other people who are into, in the, you know, in this blogging space. But it took me a while to realize this, that like the people who read No Meat Athlete are by and large on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Not, so that's like, where I go to connect with bloggers and other people who are doing the same thing as me is Twitter and it's lots of fun, but Facebook is where the average, you know, the normal nomad athlete reader is. Right. Okay. So go to the Facebook page. How many Facebook uh, fans <laughs> do you have know. now? You have a lot. 45,000 yeah, or something. That's great, man. Wow. That's yeah, cool. it is. Awesome. Yep. All right, cool. And, uh, and uh, if you want to meet up with Matt on the road, go to his site and check the schedule. Yeah. Nomeatathlete.com forward slash book, book dash, dash tour. Yeah. There you go. And there you know it. And uh, anything else you want people to know about, man? No, that's really it. I hope you check out the book. Uh, the podcast, it, dude. Oh, yeah, we have a podcast. Po that's come right. on. Like I said, it's a little weird. The No Meat Athlete podcast. Yeah. No, it's fun. And a lot of people like that. And a lot of people have found us that way. So it's a very cool thing. Yeah. iTunes, No Meat Athlete. You can just search for it and you'll find it. We've done... 17 or something episodes are not quite as prolific as the Rich Roll podcast. Well, it takes a lot of time, man. You got, you, you got a book to get out right now. You got to focus on that. That's you true. don't have time for all this podcasting <laughs> nonsense. Nah, I can't. All right. I got one last question for you and then I'm going to let you go. On your book on the back, you got a blurb from Sean Astin. <laughs> so what's yeah. the story there? Well, first tell people who Sean Astin is who, who might not know. I, I know Sean Astin as Rudy from, from the great movie. And I love that. I told you I was into uh -huh. this kind of corny stuff, but I love Rudy. Uh, so he was the guy who played Rudy. He's perhaps more famously been uh, in Lord of the Rings, Lord of the one Rings. of those. Yeah, and I don't know anything about He's that stuff. He's Frodo, right? No, which I, I which one know. is he? I don't know. Someone, My kids would know. Yeah, and he was also in the Goonies, I think. Uh -huh. I could be wrong yeah, with that, he, but uh, yeah. But he's Rudy. So, he is Rudy. I, and I I love Rudy, man. That's such a good movie. But uh, yeah, so he, I noticed his name that he had downloaded one of my products, or maybe maybe he had downloaded two of them, and I you know, emailed him and said, like, these are kind of the same product you bought. Like, here's a refund for one of them, uh, which I've actually met several people that way, which is, it seems like influential people uh -huh. just tend to buy both because they, they're not so concerned about the money, I guess, and they right. just kind of get them. But anyway, uh, so I just reached out to him and said, like, this is cool. And then I realized he had he had sent out a tweet about it, but 
hadn't like tagged me on it, so I didn't really see it. Mm-hmm. But I just saw it on his Twitter stream, and we just got in touch, and I kind of tried to help him out and promote his thing because he has a thing called Run Third. Uh, it's it's like a really, I don't know that much about it, but it's a really cool, cool like movement for getting people to run. And uh-huh. so he's really into running and uh, has been trying out a vegetarian diet, I think. And uh, yeah, we just kind of connected a little bit, stayed in touch here and there. And I just asked him if he would uh, want to support it. That's cool. That's really cool. cool. Yeah. I have a little funny Sean Astin anecdote. Well, oh, yeah. not really, but well, he lives near me. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know him. I've never met him. But I see him around, like I'll see him like around the Starbucks or whatever mm-hmm. in my my little town, and um, and I knew he was a, like a into running marathons or whatever. I've never spoken to him. I never introduced myself or anything. But I was at the pool, the little local pool where I swim. Um, maybe this was a couple months ago, maybe even like four or five months ago, and uh, and then like after I'd been swimming for a while, I noticed like the guy in the next lane. I was like. I think that's Rudy. (laughs) And it was barely anybody at the pool. There might've been four or five people in the whole pool. It's like a little six lane, 25 yard pool. And, uh, but I was like, but he looks really skinny. Like he looks really good. And I was like, no, that's not him. And then I was like, no, that's him, you know? (laughs) And I, and he was, and then he was talking to somebody else and he was saying how he had gotten, he had some injury and he couldn't run. So he was going to the pool, but he wasn't really a swimmer. It was like a new thing for him to be at the pool and, and, and paddling around and stuff. And I so wanted to like introduce myself. And then I was like, living in LA, you get really jaded, you know? And I'm like, right. oh, you just leave celebrities alone yeah, or people right like that. So I didn't say anything, but now I have my in. That's right. So yeah. when I see him, I'm going to tell him I'm friends with Matt Frazier <laughs> right. and I'm expecting big things out of him. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. That will be life changing so, for you. <laughs> but had I known that you guys knew each other then, then I would have definitely said hello. I don't know. He might've never gone back to the pool after that, but if I see him again, right. I won't reach out. Maybe he was just, maybe he was thinking the same thing saying, is that Rich Roll over there? He's like, no, I can't go to that pool so. anymore. No. Rich Roll's there next to me. He's- no. <laughs> anyway, man, uh, it was a pleasure. I'm so glad we got a chance to, to do this and uh, best of luck on the book tour, man. Me too. All right. Thanks a lot, Rich. All right, cool. All right, bye. Peace. Plants. Yeah.